Turn in the Word of God tonight to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9. What we'll do is we'll read the middle part of this chapter. We'll begin at verse 14 and end at verse 37. And the text for the sermon... I think I have it in the bulletin, 30 through 37. Really, it will be focusing on 33 through 37. So we'll end with uh, the reading of the text, 33 through 37. But we'll begin reading at verse 14. The opening 13 verses are the history of the Mount, uh, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now we come to this in verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, And the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples, and they should cast him out, that they should cast him out. And they could not. He answereth him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried up and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we cast not why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it, for he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. And now these are the words of the text for the sermon. And we'll end with reading this, 33 through 37. And he came to Capernaum, 
And being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whoever, whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So far we read Holy Scripture. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, at Granville right now, I'm preaching a series of sermons through the entire book of Mark. And the last sermon that I preached in that series was this sermon on these verses in Mark chapter 9. I preached it actually for the occasion of an applicatory sermon. But the fact is, it works just as well for a preparatory sermon. And in addition to that, a confession of faith sermon. Because tonight, as we consider this passage, we're going to see the need that we have for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will expose proud hearts, but it will also show us the path of true discipleship, of what it means to be a thankful Christian who serves the Lord because greatness in the kingdom of God is not to be elevated in the eyes of men, but greatness in the kingdom of God is to be last and to be servant of all. And so tonight we use these verses for both the occasion of confession of faith and preparatory. The passage is found in Mark chapter 9. We're basically right in the middle of the book of Mark. And in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, there are three significant passages in which the Lord Jesus clearly predicts His upcoming suffering, being killed by the hands of the Jewish leaders, and His resurrection from the dead. Right at this time in the ministry of Jesus, He's more directly setting His face toward Jerusalem. And he's telling the disciples, this is what is going to happen to me. What is so striking in Mark 8, 9, and 10 is that with each of those predictions of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection, immediately after those predictions, the Lord in the inspired Scriptures gives us powerful instruction about what it means to belong to Jesus. This, in other words, is what is going to happen to Jesus. He is going to suffer. He's going to be killed. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. And this 
is what it means for you to belong to Him. I won't read the passages. You can look them up on your own maybe afterwards tonight sometime. But Mark chapter 8 predicts Jesus' death. And immediately after that prediction of Jesus' death, we have the well-known instruction of what true discipleship is. If any man will come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what a believer in Jesus does. He takes up his cross, denies himself, and follows Christ. Then we have this passage right before our text, verses 30 through 32, a clear prediction of what is going to happen to Jesus. And then immediately after it, we have this fundamental instruction about life in the kingdom. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means to be in the kingdom of God. It's not what it's like out there in the world, but in the church and kingdom, to believe in Jesus and to follow Jesus is different because this is greatness. Greatness is to be last and to be servant of all as Jesus was the servant who gave Himself in love for His people. You go ahead to Mark chapter 10 and you find another prediction. And immediately after that powerful instruction, somewhat elaborating upon this about what it means to have and exercise authority in the kingdom of God. And when you step back, and when you reflect on this as a whole, the Spirit in these chapters is driving home to us a point that needs to be cemented in our minds. And that point is that what happened some 2,000 years ago at the cross and in the tomb, what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago has everything to say about the way in which you wake up tomorrow morning. And the way in which you think about this world. And the way in which you live your life. What Jesus did in that suffering, in that death, and in that resurrection means that when I wake up tomorrow morning, and when you wake up tomorrow morning, we live, think, in a certain way. The self-denial of a disciple. And this, understanding and living out of what greatness is in the kingdom of God. To be last and to be servant of all. And that I wake up and I think that way because I know exactly what it means that Jesus did that some two thousands of years ago in his suffering and in his death on the cross. And so let's look at that tonight. And may the Spirit give us good understanding and good conviction in order to go forth in light of our confession of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. Let's use as our theme tonight, greatness in the kingdom of God. We'll notice in the first place, the dispute of the disciples. In the second place, the instruction of Jesus. And then a summarizing third point, the aim of all service. Tonight we begin with the dispute of the disciples. The main point of Jesus in this passage, the main point being what He says in verse 35, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. That main point arises out of what is quite a troubling and disturbing 
circumstance. It arises out of this dispute of the disciples. The Lord Jesus Christ asked the disciples a question when they get to a home in Capernaum. They were traveling to Capernaum. Capernaum was the main city near the Sea of Galilee. And in all of Jesus' earthly ministry around the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Galilee, really Capernaum was their main hub. And so they went to a home in Capernaum. Some speculate that it was the home of one of the disciples who prior to being a disciple was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, possibly even Peter's home. And so they go into this home. And when they're in that home, Jesus poses to them the question in verse 33. What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? Jesus does not ask this question because He doesn't know the answer to it. There are times in the ministry of Jesus where it's very clear that His divine nature uh, shines forth. And according to His divine nature, He knew what they had been disputing. In fact, a parallel passage adds to it and says that He could even perceive what was in their hearts as they were disputing. So not only did He know what they were saying, but He also knew what was in their hearts as they were saying it. But yet He asked the question. He puts it to them. What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? He does that not for His sake, but for their sake. Because when you put the question to them, what that question did was it forced them to reckon with it. It forced them to face squarely what they were doing and the heart with which they were doing it. And every evidence of the text is that they were convicted by the question and humbled by the question. The passage says that they were disputing, by the way. And let's hang on that word disputing for a little bit. That word disputing literally means to bring together different reasons or to revolve in one's mind or to deliberate. They were disputing. Meaning that this was not a quick passing question. This was not a a one-off comment that someone made about this subject. But they were, as it were, getting after it. They were having a reasoned debate. They were deliberating and discussing about something. And they were getting into it with each other. And the question, of course, is what were they disputing? And we know the answer to that from the text. What they were disputing was the question, as we read in verse 34, who should be the greatest? Who should be the greatest? One only wonders how this all went down. You have the twelve disciples walking the streets on their way to Capernaum or in the city of Capernaum and they're talking and they're starting to get after it with each other. One wonders, how did this all happen? Were there certain disciples that were pitting themselves against each other? Was it maybe Peter, James, and John who were grouped together over against the other eight 
as the other eight recognized that there was something special about Peter, James, and John with Jesus. Right at the beginning of the chapter, after all, we didn't read it, is the history of the transfiguration of Jesus on that mountain. All of the disciples weren't there, but Peter, James, and John were. We don't know how this went down, but what we do know is that it was real. It was real that these disciples were in a heated debate about who should be the greatest. What a display of the desperate need that these men had for the grace of Jesus Christ. What a display right here when we reflect on this point upon the need that they had for what Jesus just predicted in the passage right before our text. That He would go to Jerusalem, be killed by the leaders, and rise again that third day. What a display that they needed. The grace of Jesus Christ. The the grace of Christ to forgive them of that sin, which could only be done by that death on the cross. And the grace of Jesus Christ to fight against this worldly, sinful, corrupt view of who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. It stares you in the face as you think about what Jesus just predicted with how the disciples needed that so badly in light of who they were as sinners. And so do we. Because we're right there with them when it comes to the idea and living out of the idea of what greatness is in the eyes of other men. We turn the text now back upon ourselves. And we reflect upon how it is in us to be no different than the disciples at this very moment when they were on their way to Capernaum disputing about who would be the greatest. The fact is, it is in us to have a completely flipped upside down view of what greatness is. That greatness to us, usually in the way that we think about it and talk about it, always has the idea of being elevated above. To be better than everyone else. If you're into sports, a common water cooler discussion about sports is who is the greatest? Who is the greatest athlete to step foot on the court? Or who are the greatest teams to ever set foot on the field? And the idea of that, of course, is that these were the athletes and these were the teams that were a cut above. They were different. They were distinct from, in an elevated way, from every other athlete and every other team. And not only do we sometimes think that way in the the realm of sports, but that can even be the case as we think about the church. And men in the church. And none of this is meant to deny that God gives exceptional gifts to certain men. 
and uses those gifts for the good of the church and even to to chart the course of the church in the grand scope of the history of the church throughout the ages so that I can sit in my study and when I look from my desk to the left, I see the section on theology and I see Kelvin at two institutes of the Christian religion and you step back and you say, what a... What a great man he was. And then I scan to the right and I see all my commentaries and a whole shelf of Kelvin's commentaries and you say, this man was like no other. He was great in the church. He could think. He could reason. He could write. He could preach. He could lead. He could do things in ways that the common man and most men in ministry could never even fathom to do. What a great man in the kingdom of God and in the church of Jesus Christ. Now my point with that is not to say that Kelvin wasn't gifted. Of course he was. Or that God did not use him. Of course he did. My point with these examples is to say it's in us to think about greatness in terms of being above, better, elevated, distinct from, Everyone and anyone else. And the problem is that when we turn that back on ourselves, what it comes to, which is what was in the heart of the disciples when they disputed this, was pride. That view of greatness, that worldly view of greatness, the desire to be elevated above. And to be seen in a certain way in the eyes of men is the worldly corrupt view that arises out of pride. And the Bible, beloved, is filled with examples to warn us against the desire for greatness in this way. Satan fell because in his pride he desired to be the greatest. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden believing the lie of the devil that if you eat of that fruit, this is why God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit because if you eat of it, you're going to be like God. And who doesn't want to be like God? The Tower of Babel was one giant display of the desire to be great in the eyes of men. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram didn't like that Moses and Aaron had that position of authority. They wanted it. Diotrephes in 3 John verse 9 had a desire for the preeminence. Herod, when he was worshipped in the book of Acts, and refused to stop that worship and give God the glory in that moment was struck down dead as a warning against sinful pride and the desire for greatness. It's everywhere in the Bible. And it's in us. It's in us. To want to be seen in a certain way in the eyes of others. So that all that I do in in, in the labor of the ministry and preaching is to be seen by men in a certain way. The best. 
So that as we live together, we do things so that others look at us and see us as a notch above. So that we go to work and we get caught up in the worldly ways in which people work where it's all about just rising higher and higher so that you're elevated in the industry and you work. So that you play on that field. So that you run on that course for one single reason. So that people look at you and say, you are the greatest, the best, a cut above. And none of this is meant to say that we aren't to be driven by excellence. But why? Why? Because that's the seriousness of this. The seriousness of this is that not only can we have the wrong view of greatness, but it's when that wrong view of greatness burrows into our heart, it becomes the motivation for what we are doing. Think about the disciples. If the Lord Jesus did not cut this off, and lead them in humility to see their sinful ways and to fight against it. Think about these disciples. They're on their way to Capernaum. They're debating about who is the greatest. And now, imagine if this didn't happen, and they go on in their work. And they're going on in their work with the echoes of their conversation in their ears. Who is the greatest? I am the greatest. You're not the greatest. What's going to drive them? To say, this is what I'm going to do now. With that echo of who is the greatest at the back of their minds. That's the seriousness of this. That we understand it. And we fight against it. Because so much that we can do can be driven by the sinful wrong desire out of pride to be elevated in the eyes of men. And that's part of our self-reflection and self-examination in this week. Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes to see where and how this can influence the way that I think and the way that I live. And what's so striking is how quick it can come. There's something striking about how you have this passage right after Jesus telling them that He was going to suffer and die. And the parallel passage in Luke even mentions that when they were told that Jesus was going to die, they were exceedingly sorry. They didn't understand it completely, but yet they had this sorrow of heart. And then right on the heels of that, you have them walking by the way, disputing about greatness. And you have this this clear contrast Where in one moment, the thought is about Jesus and the sorrow in their heart over Him. And right on the heels of that, the next moment is their thought about themselves and the quickness that they went to themselves and their own glory. And that's reflective of us too. Again, indicating the need that we have for the daily, daily grace of God to help us. So that we can be here tonight But then by the middle of the week, we're caught up in the wrong ways of thinking. We can be at a chapel on on a morning, but by the end of the day when we're on the court, we're not thinking about humility and service anymore. We're thinking about glory and self-exaltation. So that we can read our Bibles in the morning, but by the afternoon, 
It's all about the hierarchy and rising up in the company in the eyes of other men. We can be very quick to take those thoughts from Jesus and twist them back to ourselves. I said at the beginning of this point, what a display for the grace of God for the disciples. And what a display for the need of the grace of God for us as well. And the Lord Jesus helps us. He helps us in our everyday walk by the power of His grace to forgive and to transform. And He helps us here by giving us the instruction that we need to understand this. To understand it. To know it. Live in light of it. And that's what we have in verse 35 and following. The instruction of Jesus. And He sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. So the Lord Jesus in the home brings the disciples in front of Him. He sits down and He instructs them. This was a formal time of instruction. The teachers of Jesus' day, Jesus as a rabbi, would normally sit down when he would give his formal instruction. And you can't help but notice the patience and long-suffering of Jesus here. And that's something that we take to heart tonight as well. Jesus is always patient and long-suffering with us. The disciples were humbled by the question. They held their peace. They were embarrassed and ashamed at what they were doing. The questions serve the purpose. And Jesus therefore leads them in front of Himself, sits down, and teaches them. Corrects them. Guides them in what true greatness is in the kingdom of God. This is what it is. If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. In the world in which we live, greatness is to be above, to be better, to be best, so that everyone down here looks up at you. And what Jesus does is He obliterates that idea not only, but He flips it upside down. And that's what the Christian faith in so many regards does. The Christian faith, unlike any other religion in the world, flips everything upside down. God becomes a man with the burden of sin upon Him. Salvation is not by what we do. Salvation is by grace. Greatness is not to be above and elevated, but greatness, this is the description, is to be last. And to be last will manifest itself in humbly serving all. True greatness in God's kingdom is not to be served. It is to serve. And that word for serve in the text is what we get the English diaconate from. Selfless, sacrificial, compassion, love, mercy, service shown to others. God says that's 
That's what greatness is. In my kingdom, it's not to be first, it's to be last. It's to live in humility. And in that humility to say, I am as God gives me opportunity and ability to be the servant of all. And what Jesus does here is He drives that point home with a living illustration. What He does is He takes, as we read in verse 36, a child and set him in the midst of them. And when He had taken him in His arms, He said unto the disciples in verse 37, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in My name receiveth Me. And whosoever shall receive Me receiveth not Me, but him that sent Me. So they were in a home. And in that home was a little, little child. And as He's giving this instruction, the Lord Jesus takes that child in His arms as a living illustration. And He looks at the disciples and He says, whoever, whoever receives this little child receives Me and the One who sent Me. And to receive that little child is a living demonstration of what greatness is and service of all is in the kingdom of God. He receives that little child and receive there is the idea of taking in your arms in order to love and to nurture that child. It's the expression of love for that child. You show that love to that little child, by that you're showing your love for the Lord Jesus and the One who sent Him, the Father in Heaven. From this, we can lay out certain characteristics of the service that is greatness in the Kingdom of God. Three of them. Greatness in the Kingdom of God is to serve, number one, anyone. Anyone whom God places in our path and gives us the opportunity and ability to serve. Jesus makes that clear explicitly and by implication. He makes it clear explicitly when He says at the end of verse 35, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Anyone. And then He implies it by bringing the child in front of the disciples and saying, whoever receives loves this child receives Me and the Father who sent Me. And by implication, it's this child or it's that elderly saint or it's anyone in between. Greatness in God's kingdom is to serve anyone. To be no respecter of persons. To say where God has placed me in the community in which I live and in the body of Christ in which I have a place where God has placed me and those whom God places in my path as my neighbor when I see that they need a demonstration of the love and compassion and mercy of Jesus Christ, I extend to them and show them in my loving service that compassion and love and mercy of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who that one is. There's nothing in that person that leads me to say, yes, I'll serve that one. 
But no, I won't serve that one because of some characteristic or quality. Yes, I'll bring the, the Word of Jesus Christ to this person. But nah, over here, outside of my bounds for this reason or that reason. That's not greatness. Greatness is a child of God who knows the Lord Jesus Christ and says any and all whom God places in my path and gives me opportunity to express the love of Christ too. That is whom I will serve. Number two, it is to serve unseen. It's to serve any and all. It's to serve as well, number two, unseen. And I believe that's an implication that can come from the fact that he puts a child in front of them. For the disciples to receive that little child meant really nobody would know about it. Maybe a person or two. But to take that little child and to show the love of Jesus Christ and care for that child meant that you weren't doing it in the eyes of other men. You weren't doing it so that the people that mattered saw it. You were doing it because you knew that that child needed the compassion and love of Christ. And for no other reason than to serve your God and to serve your Savior do you look at that child and say, I will love and nurture and show the compassion of Jesus to that child. And the greater point of that is you do it unseen. That neighbor that you live to, next to. So that nobody here, nobody here, unless maybe they live on the road that you live on, knows about it. But you say, that person, God has given me opportunity to share the love of Christ with, and I'm going to do that, even though nobody else will know it, or in the body of Christ, where you know to reach out, to serve, to love, this particular member will mean nobody knows about it. But yet, because I love my Savior, this is what I'm going to do, because they need the love of that Savior. And this is as broad as it can be in this way or in that way or another way. Unseen. And then number three, unpaid. Similar idea, I suppose. Unpaid. To take a child who has no reputation in the world, who has no monetary means in order to give back for the care and love that is shown, means that you do it simply because you know that this is what it means to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We have service in the kingdom and in this world upside down when what is governing it is being received by men, seen by men, or to receive something from it. Jesus says, this is greatness, to be last, and in being last, to be servant of all. And so the Lord Jesus by this instruction is making clear that greatness in God's kingdom is everywhere. It's everywhere. It's not just what is seen publicly. 
Yes, there are people that need to serve in public positions so that they are out front, behind a pulpit, explaining God's Word. So dangerous and so needed with that is the accountability of those around them to make sure that the reason one is doing it is not to be seen, not to be paid, not for the exaltation of self. Yes, there is that public reality that we often are prone to associate greatness with, but Jesus flips that upside down and says this is what greatness is. It's living in your community and where God gives you opportunity sharing the love of Jesus Christ when else no one else knows about it. It's the mother. It's the mother who's in the home with the child, their children day after day, giving their life for the good of the physical and spiritual welfare of the children God has given them. It's a spouse who took a vow and said, till death do us part. So that at the end of one's life, when one spouse has the ability to, to, to get around and do things, but says, no, no, that's not going to be my life because my life needs to be at my spouse's side caring for them in humble, loving, selfless service. Getting no recognition for it. Known maybe only to a few. Greatness is being in the body of Christ and saying, I'm going to walk side by side with that person who needs someone right now. and I'm not going to leave them. I'm going to be there for them. Greatness. It's everywhere. It's everywhere where God works in the hearts of His people. The Gospel conviction to lovingly serve in humility where one has opportunity and ability. The third point of the sermon is the aim of all service. And I realize fully that in the course of the sermon, this has been alluded to, if not stated explicitly, but let's, let's end on this point. Let's go home with this point in mind. What is the aim of all of that service, which is the description of greatness in God's kingdom? The aim of all of that service is never self. That's what the disciples would have aimed at if they held on to this dispute that they were having. That's what all worldly greatness aims at. It always flips it back and looks and points at self. And we have to be careful with that even in the service that we give and the love that we supposedly show. We can even be so twisted in that where we're doing these things because in the end, it makes us feel good to do them. And already there, we've, we've missed the aim. The aim is not back at ourselves, but that aim is always the Lord Jesus Christ and His honor and God's glory. And when you make confession of faith, and when you live out of that confession of faith, you say, I know who Christ is. And I know that He was the one who gave in service like no one else. In fact, because He did that, that's the only reason that I could ever do it. And it's why I want to do it. I see the Lord Jesus who I love who I serve, 
who I dedicate my life to. And I say, for His glory, for His honor, I live. I live in the kingdom. I live in this world aimed not at myself and praying all my life long, Lord, forgive when I do this and change me more and more so that I don't do this. And you aim. You're constantly turning back and aiming to the glory of God and to the honor of Jesus Christ because you know that He was the servant. He was the servant that gave Himself in service and love like no one could and like no one ever did. Saying for you and saying for me, I'm going to go to hell for them. I'm going to take what they have done upon myself. And in the greatest selfless act of love and service, I'm going to lay down my life so that they can be numbered among my people. So that I can work in their hearts faith. So that they believe in me. So that they know these are the blessings of salvation. And so that they can let my light, my light shine. Light doesn't shine just here. Light shines there. And then it disperses. It disperses into the homes, the communities, the offices, the jobs, the lives that you live as you humbly live in the service of others in the kingdom and in the world. So that when that light shines, it's not a spotlight back on self. Because you're aiming it to the right way. It's a spotlight that shines on the One who already radiates with all the glory and beauty of God, the Lord Jesus Christ your Savior, and your Lord. Let us examine ourselves in this regard to know where we have fallen in this way. To believe that the Lord Jesus has forgiven us and He is our Savior. And to be resolved to say, Lord, help me be a servant of all. May God help us. And may God prepare us to partake of the Lord's Supper next week Sunday. Amen. Father in heaven, we love thy word. We're thankful for thy word. We pray thy blessing upon the preaching of thy word. Not only for the three that made confession of faith tonight, that they would go forth in loving service, but for all of us, whom Thou hast brought here to sit under the preaching of the Gospel. Go with us now, for Jesus' sake. Amen.